that was the first African-American teacher to integrate the faculty of that school, making me become the first African-American teacher to integrate the Danville public school system. And the interesting thing is I didn't know that I was going to be the one to integrate it. So the first day that I entered the big faculty meeting, I walked in and sat down, and then I looked up, and I decided to see, you know, what other black teachers were in the room with me? And to my amazement, there were none. Mrs. Johnny Fullawinda started teaching in Danville, Virginia in 1966. You just heard about her first day on the job at George Washington High School. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Allridge, and I'm a professor in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement project. And I'm Dr. Danielle Wingfield-Smith, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Virginia and the Associate Director of the Teachers in the Movement Project. Additionally, Chantel White, who was an undergraduate student at the time, conducted this interview with Ms. Fullerwinder with me. I was the only one. It was like, am I dreaming? I mean, did this really happen? Where are all the other black teachers that were supposed to be here? It, it was shocking. We were seated by departments, so the people in my department were sort of cordial to me, but the others had nothing to do with me whatsoever. I don't know if they were ignoring me or they too were in shock because I'm not sure that they had been warned of my coming. When a meeting ended, most of the teachers got up and just sort of went in their own direction. Nobody came to me to say anything to me. So I just kind of felt that with this stress, I need to get away somewhere to myself and just kind of unwind, so I went into the restroom. When I went into the restroom, there were two teachers in there ahead of me. I spoke, they did not. When they looked and saw me, they heard and washed their hands and left the restroom very quickly. I kind of walked around the building for a while, and to my shock, I was the only black person I saw in that entire building for that day. Before I left, however, my department chairperson was out because of death in the family, so he was not there. There was another teacher who stood in for him, and he did come up to me before I left and made some casual remarks to me, so I felt a little bit better about that. But the other teachers would walk by me in the hall and act as though they didn't see me. So it was, it was a, a shocking situation. It was a sad situation. But it was a situation that made me decide that I was not going to be outdone, that I would show that black teachers were capable of being able to do an effective job of teaching students regardless of what color they were. And despite the fact I may not have been accepted by them, I was going to stay there and do my job and show that I could do it. I would reach out to them and it was up to them as to whether or not they reciprocated. But in time, I found changes began to come. Mrs. Fullerwinder's story is so intriguing. She shows up on her first day, not even realizing she was going to integrate the school. What are your thoughts about how she addresses race on her first day at the high school in Danville? I can only imagine what it must have been like to go to your first meeting 
with your colleagues, with other teachers, and feeling that they were not paying you any attention or that they may not have even wanted you to be there. And I can remember this as a first-year teacher myself. I remember being accepted and being part of the guild of teachers. She had to be a very strong person to overcome that and to eventually become a very successful teacher at that school and to convince those teachers that she was just as good as they were. So tell us why you're interviewing former teachers in the movement, like Mrs. Fullerwinder. I'm a former middle school and high school teacher myself, and growing up I was inspired by many teachers, particularly teachers who attended my little country church in Catawba, South Carolina. My mother was a teacher, and my aunties were teachers. So I grew up in a family of teachers. I was inspired by them. The Teachers in the Movement Project started in 2014, and our purpose is to learn and to discern what teachers were doing in the civil rights movement. To what extent were they involved in the civil rights movement? Were they activists? Were they not activists? How did they view their participation in the civil rights movement? And one of the arguments that we are making based on our preliminary research is that these teachers were activists by way of their pedagogy. Teachers who taught about issues of democracy, equality, and freedom in the classroom and promulgated ideas of civil rights and social justice were activists in our opinion. So you taught science, and I'm interested to know as a African-American teacher and scientist, how did you teach science? Did race ever come into the issue, or did you just stick strictly with the science in your classroom when, when you were teaching in Danville? First of all, let me say I taught biology and okay. physical science okay. there. With racism, it never came up because I brought the topic up first. My first day with the students, it was obvious that they had not anticipated seeing the black teacher in the classroom when they walked in the room. Many of them came in and there was a stunned look on their faces. The tension was so thick you could almost cut it with a knife. I noticed one young lady, she got to the door, looked, saw me, actually took her fingers, pinched her nose, and turned to the side as though to say, I was thinking. A few of the students sat down and turned their heads and never looked at me the whole time I stayed. So I decided to take the initiative. I made a statement something to this effect. Welcome to George Washington High School. I'm going to be your teacher for the year, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you have an exciting venture here at George Washington High School. I said, I'm black. It's obvious. I know I'm black. You can see that I'm black. So I do not intend to spend a lot of time discussing the issue. My goal here is to make sure that you're a much better science student when you leave here than the day you walk in. And I am dedicated to doing that. My focus is going to be on education. It would be nice if you choose to like me. If you don't, it does not matter. But my goal is to do everything I can to teach you. So all I do is invite you to let me teach you. Nobody else said anything else about it. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to interview Mrs. Fullerwinder and how you were able to build trust and rapport with her? I have to admit, I was a little nervous before the interview, mainly because I have so much respect for Mrs. Fullerwinder after I'd read her biography. I learned one important fact before the interview. She was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. And before we rode the tape and before we started recording the video, I asked her, was she a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority? And she said yes. 
And I told her that my mother was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. So being able to connect with Ms. Fullerwinder around the issue of a black organization like a sorority and a fraternity was very, very important. It, it made me less nervous in the interview, to be, to be quite honest with you. What was your method, your teaching method? How did you teach? I did a variety. I did a lot of uh, hands-on, a lot of independent investigation. And I was able to put students in little small groups. And then there were times that I would lecture. I just did a combination of them. Someone called to my attention a little bit later on that your teaching is so different from most of the teachers here. They do a lot of lecturing. We would do some what I call mini field trips. To me, the campus was a vast area for exploration. So we'd go out on the lawn, and I would divide the lawn up into small sections and give an assignment for certain things that students were to find within that area, and we'd come back in the classroom and discuss it. So I was constantly coming up with creative ways to make teaching interesting. And students seemed so interested in my classes. It was the second semester. Several of them who did not seem to like me when I first entered were going to the guidance council to ask if they could be transferred to my classes. During your interview with Mrs. Fullerwinder, did she ever mention the pressure that she must have felt going into these classrooms? Well, if you look at Mrs. Fullerwinder's interview, it will be evident to you that she was a very confident teacher and that she's very confident now. With that said, she told me that failure was not an option, and that's the title of her book. And she was committed to doing the best job she could do, to be the best teacher she could be, and to make her students the best science students that they could be. So I would encourage folks to look at her interview with that idea in mind. Failure was not an option. And to read her book. I thought of myself as being sort of like a pioneer, a trailblazer, someone that would make it easier for others to follow. I felt that if I had not been successful with everyone watching me, that it would have delayed significantly the merging of all the schools together. So I felt I had to do an exceptional job to show, first of all, that black people were capable of being able to teach, that we are knowledgeable, that I could demonstrate good classroom management skills, that I could have the kind of personality that could relate to people and let them see that I was just an individual who cared about them. Did you learn that teaching method at Livingston or was, was it just something that you did naturally? I think it was me. It was naturally. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Education really was not my first choice. I was interested in entering the medical profession, really nursing, because I came from a family of nurses. But I had an interesting experience. Upon graduation, I was offered a scholarship from Davidson College in Salisbury, North Carolina. My mother was undergoing some illnesses at the time, so I know there was a financial strain on the family. So I chose to help them out since there were four students four children in the family to educate, to take the scholarship and go to Livingston. When I got there, I found they did not offer nursing. So then I was faced with the decision, what should I do? I chose teaching. And since science is very similar to medicine, I decided to go into science. In school, learning came easy for me. It did not seem to be that way for other students. So I felt that if I could use creative teaching strategies, I could probably affect positive changes in the attitudes of a lot of other students and make them develop a joy for learning. So growing up, you always had an interest in science. I did. I did. And I think the reason for that is because I told you I had uh, relatives that were nursing. And at the time I was growing up for black 
females. The choices were limited. I could do business. I could do nursing. I could do probably something in the technical world, but not to the extent that we have the technology now. So my choices were limited. I felt that I was a people person. I enjoyed trying to help other folks. And that nursing would be a way to do that. Hadn't anticipated the teaching. But I found I enjoyed trying to get other people to learn. I think it was the best decision I could have made. I've enjoyed it immensely. Do you have a favorite teacher when you were growing up, someone in science or in, in any field that really in some way influenced you? Well, I did. She wasn't a science teacher. She was my fifth grade teacher. She seemed to have taken a special interest in me. And uh, I, I felt special with her. She seemed to have seen something special in me. And she gave me a lot of extra encouragement. And I admired so much the help I was getting from her. So I decided when I made the choice not to go into nursing, that maybe I could be like that teacher of mine who inspired me. Did you feel segregation on you when you were in college, or were you somewhat insulated from that situation by being on campus? Well, to be frank with you, I had experienced those injustices from childhood, so it was just a carryover when I got to Livingstone College. I had kind of grown up being relegated to the position of inferiority, the second-class citizen. And when I came to Salisbury, North Carolina, where Livingstone is located, that was just a continuation of that. Uh, there were two worlds, seemingly, a black world and a white world, and they never seemed to realize that the other one existed. If I left the campus and I went out into the community, if I encountered someone of the other race, it was as though they didn't see me. And I had learned to basically be the same way to what they were. So they're just a continuation. The South itself was segregated during that time frame. It was just a way of life. So as we go through these cities in Virginia and other places in the South, speaking to teachers like Mrs. Fullerwinder, what are we finding about the conditions of these segregated schools and the resources that they had or didn't have? As many historians have pointed out, the schools were not equal. The black schools were, for the most part, underfunded, and the white schools received adequate funding. Despite these inequities, the black schools were often good. In many cases throughout the South, we find that some of the black schools were even better than the white schools, even though they did not have the same amount of resources. And I understand you taught three years prior to coming to Danville. I did. I had done extremely well in college, and I was offered a job at my high school alma mater in South Carolina. So I went back there and I taught, and the interesting thing was that we had a lot of very good instructors. The only drawback was that we were limited in instructional supplies. Even when it came to doing tests or pop quizzes, teachers did not have access to what would be a Xerox machine today. It was called a mimeograph machine in those days. We didn't have access to that. They had to actually write that information on the board for the students to copy down. When it came to the textbooks, the textbooks were old and dilapidated and taped up, and it was obvious that they had been around for a long period of time, but they weren't in our system, which suggested that they had been used at the white school and passed down to us when they received the new textbooks. I was teaching science classes. I only had two microscopes for six classes of students, but determined that my students would get the education that they needed to be successful scientists. I would set up two microscopes at the teacher's desk and have students to come up in groups of twos. 
to observe what I wanted them to observe. When I left there, it was a striking contrast to what I had seen there. And I always heard of the doctrine of separate but equal. I found that was the farthest thing from the truth. Because I, when I went to Virginia, came to Virginia, I encountered an opposite kind of segregation or white classrooms. When I got there, I found that the supplies were astronomical. The first time I walked into the laboratory, I was stunned. I saw enough microscopes, it must be at least 50 or 60, to accommodate every two children a single microscope to do whatever it was that they did to get done. Textbooks are brand new. I had never seen a new textbook before. All of the supplies that you could possibly want, there was a mimeograph machine, there was ample supply of paper for teachers to work with, to run off materials that they wanted students to do. And in addition to that, if we needed some materials like live microorganisms to observe, I could order those, as many as I want. And there was no one to tell me, no, as long as I was using it for the students. Incredible story. You said you noticed a big difference between the resources from Carver High School in Spartanburg and George Washington High School in Danville. Did you notice many differences between the teachers other than their race? Did you notice many differences between the students? And that was the surprising part. I'd always uh, been led to believe that blacks were intellectually inferior. I found it was the farthest from the truth. Farthest from the truth. There was no difference between the black students and the white students I had experienced because I'd had the opportunity to do both. In less than four years after I graduated from college, there was no difference. As far as the teachers were concerned, they were about like the teachers in the all-black school as far as their credentials were concerned. The only matter, and I kind of chuckle when I think about it, thing that I observed was in the black culture, we had a tendency to refer to people by their last names. I was Mrs. Fuller-Wyden, Mr. Smith. But there, I found they used the first name. And when I thought about it, I said, the reason we did what we did probably because we weren't allowed to use last names during the time of slavery. So it was an honor to be able to refer to ourselves with a surname. With the whites, they never had that kind of experience, so it was different. I recall once I was standing in the hall and the department chairperson in a crowded area came up and said, Johnny, I need to see you. I whirled. And it, it upset me and I was getting ready to say, you're disrespectful to me. But before I could say anything, one of the white females came up and he says, oh, Joan, and I need to see you too. And I realized it was not being disrespectful for me by calling me by first name, but that's just something they had a tendency to do. So when you were working in Danville as a teacher, were the other teachers involved in civil rights activities that you are aware of? Let me put it this way. As far as females are concerned, it was dangerous for them to participate in any public acts of activism. Females during those days were held to a higher moral and social standards than others. Had we been seen out there, we'd have been fired right off. But what we did, and even I did that, we contributed financially, the ways in which we could do it without getting ourselves in trouble. When I first started teaching, I applied to several different places for a job because you always do that, you're not knowing where you're going to end up. Some of the contracts even had on them, if a female teacher, once employed, marries, the contract is automatically terminated. Females were not allowed to be seen in certain areas, they were considered to be perfect examples for students. 
So it was too risky because you could lose your job. Now, as far as the males, I don't know. It may have been different for them. But no, I did not choose to do any of that visibly because I knew my job could be in, da in danger and I, I need the job. And I'm sure other teachers may have felt the same way. I heard of many of them who said that they contributed financially, but they chose not to go at, out and actually do the marching. And years later, that was a difference with me. I became heavily involved in voter registration drives. And that way I didn't emphasize any particular party, but I talked about the necessity of being a registered voter because it gave one political strength. So during the time that President Obama was running for office, I took on a major role in that campaign. I was very much interested in voter registration. And as a result of that, I was invited to one of his rallies in Roanoke, Virginia, to have my picture taken with him. I had an opportunity to say some words to him beforehand, and it was awesome. He is very, every bit as personable in person as he appears to be on television. That was not my first time meeting him. We had another congressman running for an office. I can't think of his name right now. And I had helped him too. So I had been invited earlier, maybe about two years earlier, to Charlottesville for a rally where President Obama came down in support of him. And I was one of the people, along with my husband, who got an opportunity to sit on the stage behind him. At that rally, I got a chance to check, shake his hand. But then in 2011, I actually got a chance to meet him. He hugged me, and that was awesome. In addition to her years teaching science, Mrs. Fullerwinder also served as an administrator. She says that the promotion meant a lot to her and was an example of how much things had changed over her career. I integrated the school system, first African-American teacher at George Washington High School. Ironically, my classroom was at the back of the building, as all science classes were. Several years later, I became an assistant principal at the same high school and was given an office at the front of the building. Time had brought about changes. How did your level of respect from the students and from your faculty members, how did that transition? How did that change? Many of the teachers there remembered me in the classroom and how well I was able to handle the students and they knew of my command for the subject matter. I didn't have any problems with acceptance. The students saw me as being sort of stern. They said that I was firm but fair. So technically, I think I was able to do an excellent job of handling students as an administrator. I think I ex was able to get the acceptance of the teachers. They did not mind me coming into the classroom, observing and evaluating them. When they felt there was a need for assistance, they didn't seem to mind asking me for that assistance. And in many instances, they were making very, very positive comments about my role and felt that it was a beautiful idea that they chose to bring me back in that particular position. What would you want students today to know about civil rights and the civil rights movement? What would you want them to know about your role as an educator in civil rights? I would want them to know that the civil rights struggle was a painful and sometimes deadly movement. But its goal was quite admirable, to make sure that every person had access to the same rights, to eliminate segregation of races. I saw firsthand that the doctrine of separate but equal was just a farce. So until people could actually get together in the same area, they would never 
begin to equal access. And I want them to know that even though it, there was a lot of violence involved, it brought out the best in all races because there were whites as well as blacks who were involved in the civil rights for people of the African-American race and some other disadvantaged group too. So that everybody would be able to take advantage of what America boasted, freedom for all people. One of the ideas that God teaches in the movement is an African proverb which says, when an elder dies, a library burns down. And we want to record as many interviews as possible so that we will have the memories, the thought of individuals for posterity. Mrs. Fullerwinder's interview really made me think about my own career as an educator. It made me think about my own pedagogy. Mrs. Fullerwinder talks about how she wanted to get her students out of the classroom and out into the field and give them hands-on activities. And I tried to be that kind of teacher when I taught uh, middle and high school social studies and history many moons ago. And I tried to be that kind of instructor today in my capacity as a professor at the University of Virginia. Why should people listen to this podcast? I think it's very important to listen to this podcast if you really want to know what teachers were teaching during perhaps one of the most important social movements in the 20th century. We can't disconnect teachers from what was going on in the streets. What was going on in the larger society during the Civil Rights Movement had a great impact on what teachers were doing in the classroom during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, what we call the uh, post-Civil Rights period. So if you want to know what these teachers were doing, we encourage you to go look at our videos, and uh, they'll tell you. They'll tell you how they taught, what they taught, and some of the challenges they faced in the classroom. What are some future themes and topics we'll talk about on the Teachers in the Movement podcast? So our discussion of teachers and their pedagogy in the classroom between 1950 and 1980 will be the foundation of the Teachers in the Movement podcast. However, we will also talk about related issues. We will discuss the teaching of African American history. We will talk about why we need more teachers of color. And we will also discuss the role that teachers can play in contemporary social movements. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the outcomes that will come from the Teachers in the Movement project? By the end of 2021, we hope to have 500 videotaped interviews. Many of those interviews will be online at teachersinthemovement.com. And we would like for students, teachers, and researchers from around the world to access and use those videotaped interviews for research purposes and for purposes of learning how to teach better. That's what we hope. Also, every summer we hold a summer teacher's institute where we provide teachers an opportunity to engage with teachers who taught between 1950 and 1980. But we also uh, give them instruction on teaching African-American history and working with primary sources in classrooms. So it's a excellent professional development opportunity for teachers that we provide every summer. For all the listeners out there who are now thinking of their family members who were teachers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, who know people that would be great to interview for our project, how do they get in touch with us? 
So again, I direct them to teachersinthemovement.com. There's a place on our website where they can email us directly and suggest names of individuals that they think we should interview. And the sooner the better. As you know, many of these teachers uh, who taught between this period now are coming of age. Many of them are in their 70s, 80s, 90s. We've even interviewed teachers who have been 102 years old. I think may have been the oldest teacher that we've interviewed. So we really, really would appreciate if people reached out to us. I'm Derek Allridge, and my co-host today is Dr. Danielle Wingfield-Smith. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. We'd like to thank Chantel White for helping conduct this interview. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee, and our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.